All right, Scott, why don't you come on up, and uh, guys, you can uh, review with him. Hey, thanks for being here. Thank you for getting yourself out of bed. Um, it's harder to get out of bed when it's this time of year than when it's July. Um, it's, it's nice to lay in bed. But when you're here, um, just remind yourself of what you're doing when you're here. You are helping the body of Christ. Um, you're encouraging other guys in their walk with Christ. And um, it's a very needed, very necessary thing. So thanks again for coming. It's just encouraging to me to see a room full of guys here who are here for the purpose of encouraging one another. Um, let's talk about ways that we do that in our own life. So if you have this, turn this upside down, turn this backwards, and look with me at it. And we're going to be just reminding ourselves of what these disciplines are. Um, this is not something that we've, we don't know and we don't understand, but it is good for us to look at these. It is really good for us to remind ourselves of what it means to be a disciplined man. And these are the things we aim at. Every one of us has a heart. Your heart is, is not speaking here of something that, that pumps blood through your body. It's talking about who you are. Every one of us has an identity of who we are and what our affections are, what our purposes are, what our aims are. And it is inherent in us that we have a heart. It's incumbent in us, on us, to shepherd that heart well. And the way we do that is reminding ourselves of just what Scott did as he was praying this morning, where we sit in relationship to the God who created us. We sit under him, we serve him. Um, he does not satisfy our demands and our needs. Um, we have that mindset when we meet alone with the Lord. We open up his word and we see him revealing himself to us. <clears throat> So shepherding our heart involves reading truth from God's word and reminding ourselves of who God is, what he's done for us, where he sits in relation to us, where we sit in relationship to him. We also have a context in which we live. And in a room this size, there's a variety of contexts, whether it's a family or whether you have parents that live with you or near you, whether you have roommates, whether you have siblings, you all live in a home context and the way that you prepare your heart and you speak truth to your heart has implications on how you function in that home context, regardless of who it's with, whether it's with roommates or parents or in-laws or kids or spouses, um, whatever it is, um, how you shepherd your own heart has great bearing on your patience, your kindness, your gentleness, your joy, your compassion. I had the chance to live that out last night. I hadn't seen my son all day. He came home, and yesterday was not my best shepherding, my hard shepherding day. And um, I had a chance to encourage my son and comfort my son, and it could have gone much better um, if I had been shepherding my heart the way that I normally do. And so I lost an opportunity, and it was great harm to my son. We had to have a time of forgiveness and reconciliation uh, shortly after a conversation we had that didn't go well. And um, I saw firsthand yesterday the, the fruit of not shepherding my own heart on a regular basis throughout the day and, and the harm that it brings to the ones that I love the most. Um, so I want to just encourage you that there are very real implications to that. And be aware of that. Be sensitive to that. When we, when we shepherd our heart by meeting with the Lord and when we live that out in our home, we are the kind of men who are ready to step into ministry because um, we can come to ministry with integrity. We can come to ministry as ones who can accurately represent the message that they're actually giving. 
we can actually say with integrity to people, follow me as I follow Christ. Whether that person is um, a six-month-old baby that you're holding in the nursery, like I'm scheduled to do tomorrow, or whether it's working in student ministries, you can look them in the eye and you can say, follow me as I follow Christ, because you're reading your Bible, because you're, you're talking to the Lord in prayer, because you're living rightly with the people around you. You actually bring to them a picture of what it looks like um, in later stages of their lives. So ministry is, is effective, ministry is fruitful when we read our Bibles and when we meet consistently with the Lord and we live that out in our homes and we bring that with our family into this church. In a lot of settings here, you serve with your wife. Um, or if you're a sibling, you can serve with your sister or your brother. My kids have served together in this church, and let me tell you, their service to this church is much more effective when they're living at peace with one another in the house. Right? And they're living at peace with one another in their house, and the only way they can do that is when they're reading their Bibles and they're confessing to the Lord the sin that they need to confess to one another. Um, that way they, they can come in here and they can serve together with integrity whether it's student ministries or whatever else it is. We're going to talk a little bit about deacon qualifications, our, our fourth discipline here. What we want to be doing, every one of us, even elders, need to be aspiring to be the kind of man that's described in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. And we're going to be talking about that more later in the spring. But he's a man who is a man of dignity. He is a man who is not double-tongued. He is a man who is the manager. He's a good manager of his own home and a number of other things. Just a couple of words today of what it means to be a man who is not double-tongued. Let's think about this carefully for a second. Um, a deacon is a man who is not double-tongued. What that means is he's a man who has one message. Regardless of his audience, he has one message. He doesn't speak one way to those in this context and then speak with a, another position to this context. And here's why that's very important. It's very important because the deacon role is a layer of servant leadership between the, the elder leadership of the church and the body. And so he communicates back and forth between the elders and the body. And he reports and he, he knows and he's aware of many, many things. And that helps you understand why it's so important that he has one message. When he's talking to people in the body, he has the same message, he brings the same information to the leadership of the church. The body is served well, the elders are served well, the whole church is served well when he's a man who has one message. And he gets to be that man, that kind of man in the church when he's that kind of man at home. He's that kind of man at home when he's that kind of man privately with the Lord. He's honest with the Lord about his own sin. He doesn't gloss over it. He meets with the Lord. The final qualification and discipline that we want to have in front of us all the time is we want to be men who are continually growing in our ability to handle the Word. If we're going to be meeting with God alone in the Word, um, it is really a good thing to be always growing, regardless of where you are. If you're two days into your walk with Christ or you're 20 years into your walk with Christ, every one of us needs to aim to, to handle the Word better and better every day. We want to be the kind of men who, who when we're reading a passage, we, we understand what the main point of the passage is. We understand what is being said. We understand how to rightly interpret what's in front of us so that we can live it out in our own life first and then in our home and then here and then in our neighborhoods and every place else. And so we have, this is a great place for us to start that here at this church. We have things after that. We have the trust, which used to be called H3. 
that meets on a weekly basis. And a number of guys here have been through that. A bunch of guys have. It's a, a great place to, to just learn some of what I've been saying, how to actually approach the word and how to read the word and how to speak with confidence to people about the word uh, because you understand a little bit more of how to read the word. Um, we have all of those things for us here. And that's the, the fifth discipline. That's the hermeneutic. So um, we want to keep those things in front of us every day. I wanted to share a couple of thoughts, uh, more thoughts about prayer. It's really, really important that every one of us want to grow in the way in which we pray. We're talking about meeting with the Lord in time in his word, reading the word, and in time speaking back to him in prayer. It's very helpful that we understand things that are are very helpful and meaningful and and strengthening to our prayer life. And one of those things is to regularly remind ourselves of what has taken place by God's design and by God's plan to bring us into a right relationship with him talked a month ago about understanding who it is that we're talking to when we pray and sometimes shepherding your heart through the creation story and and who it is that God is and how that affects your confession and how that affects your thanksgiving and how that affects your praise and how that affects your asking of God for things. Same thing is true when you recite to yourself what God has done to save you. When you recite what God has done is before he created any of the things that we walked through a month ago. He had a plan of salvation for you, and that's because he knew everything that you would do. He understood everything you would say. He understood everything that you would think. And he knew all of those things that would be offensive to him. And he understood exactly how offensive those things would be to him because he is a holy God and he is a creator God. And we are created beings, and and our sin as created beings is an infinite offense against the holy God. And he measured his response to that. And he saw that his response to that was an anger that we would never be able to satisfy in ourselves. That's because we're created beings. It's not because anything else. It's because as a created being, we don't possess what was necessary to satisfy God's anger against us. It's very helpful to remember that that God saw that before the creation of the world, he determined that we would be holy and we would be blameless before him. And that there was a provision that would need to be made because we could never satisfy his anger against us. So he did the only thing that he could. He gave a part of himself, the only thing that could satisfy his anger against us. He determined that the third person of the Trinity would come in power upon a young girl. And she would conceive within herself the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. Who in the right time would be born into this world as one who was fully man because he was born of a woman, but he was fully God because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It's really helpful to remember in your prayer life that 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 one lived a perfect life for us. He lived a perfect life and he was without sin. He was without sin as a young child in front of his parents. I think if any of us have children here, we think of how easy it is for young children to sin against their parents. It's inherent in them. It's part of their nature. He never did that. He never crawled where he wasn't supposed to crawl if they had buttons that he wasn't supposed to touch. He didn't touch the buttons. Get this, when he was um, a younger child, he, he never mocked his younger brothers and sisters. We know he had them. From Scripture we read Mark's Gospel, we read Luke's Gospel. We know he had younger brothers and sisters. He never sinned against them. As an adolescent, as a juvenile, he never looked with lust upon an attractive young woman. In Nazareth, he never did that. He never became weary of his disciples and how slow they were. He never led him into sin. 
And he was tempted by the enemy for 40 days in the wilderness. He, he never fell into sin there. He always relied upon the word and the wisdom of the word. And he did all of that so that he could go to the cross and accomplish what we could not accomplish. John's Gospel in chapter 19, verse 28, tells us that there was a point in Jesus' suffering at the cross where he knew that everything had been accomplished. He knew that he had satisfied the full weight of God's anger against everybody who would trust him as their Savior and Lord. I walk through all of that because it's helpful to me to remember those things when I'm confessing my sin, that my sin was actually paid for by that kind of God who actually lived that kind of life. It took that kind of a life. It took that kind of one to satisfy and to atone for my sin. That helps my confession. It also helps my thanksgiving. And I remember that something was done for me that I could never do for myself, as hard as I would try. And so sometimes it's very helpful in my prayer life to remember exactly what God has done to save me. It was a provision that he made before he created anything. I praise him for his wisdom and his power in creating everything, but also in creating a design for salvation that was not dependent upon my abilities. And so that's very, very helpful. So sometimes when you're praying, think your way through that. And think about how that can be helpful in confession of your sin. It's a process by which you, you're led into a more deep engagement with God over the, the issue of your sin, rather than just throwing something out there and stating it and sort of admitting it to the Lord. It's, it's good to actually walk through what cost it was that you were, you were redeemed at. So it's very, very helpful. So those are our disciplines. That's a little bit more about prayer, and that's a little bit more about deacon qualifications. Again, thanks for coming this morning. All right, let's take out your uh, worksheet for today. We're going to be in the Maybe. book of Proverbs again, looking at several different Proverbs. Proverbs is a book that you need to, uh, on a regular basis, just be working through. I encourage just some different things you can do with the book of Proverbs is um, look for themes, uh, issues that you want to, like, for instance, uh, as you read through Proverbs one month, it's really worked, you know, set up nicely. Uh, you basically got as many chapters of Proverbs as you have in a month. And so one of the things you can do as you're working through Proverbs is you can, um, one month, look for humility or teachability. And just write that down, and every time you see a verse that speaks to that, Write that verse in Proverbs down. And then the next time you do it, um, pick up something like the fear of the Lord. And so that you have all of the verses on the fear of the Lord in Proverbs. And just keep doing that the rest of your life. Pride. Um, whatever the issue is, the angry man, anger. You can, you can just go through and, and find out everything that God has in his wisdom for you in Proverbs in regards to that subject. And then um, it, it actually comes in handy because then you'll be, you know, raising kids or you'll be sitting with somebody that you um, want to care for. And they're, you, all of a sudden you'll be like, oh, that's, that's an issue of um, the tongue. And um, I actually can give you a bunch of verses. Let's look at them together on the tongue. And, and you can, you know, work through it together and, and talk through it. it. It just equips you well for your own soul to be able to care for your own heart. Uh, but it also helps you to be able to uh, be effective in caring for others. So just a little side note on Proverbs for you. Um, before we look at it, let's pray. And then we'll uh, dig into our, our lesson today and see what um, questions Proverbs might want to ask our hearts. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your wisdom that you have recorded for us uh, in your word. And we know that your son has become for us wisdom. Um, What would our wisdom be without him? It would be hollow. It would be empty. What would our wisdom be without your word? Our wisdom would be lies. Um, And so we are thankful now to just be able to humble ourselves under your word and pray that, God, you would help us to, again today, think more clearly and biblically um, about our hearts, about our inner man, and may Proverbs lead us in that discovery. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. I have them written out for you uh, as well, but if you want to turn there in your Bible, that's good. Um, By the way, another subject, as I look at my own Bible, I look at my margins. um, One of the things you can do in Proverbs is when you see that subject, write it in the margin. Um, One is great for men is work. Every time something is mentioned about work in Proverbs, go to it. Um, it, it, That's that's a good one as well. All right, so what we're going to do today is we're looking at um, what God says about the human heart in Proverbs, and then I've put them in the form of, how many questions do I have? Four? Yeah, four questions. Oh, it says at the top, four questions from my heart from Proverbs. That's a good title. Um, I have four questions. It was a short night. So look, we're going to take a look at Proverbs 20, verse 9, Proverbs 21, verse 2, Proverbs 28, verse 26, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 for this first one. Number one, here's your question with a blank. Do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment of my heart? Who value, uh, whose assessment of your heart do you value most? What you see about your own heart or what God reveals about your heart. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, who can say, I've cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. Um, That question asked in Proverbs 20 verse 9 is not primarily attacking the wrong idea that a sinner who is not saved could somehow clean himself up and be saved by God. Um, that's true. Sinner cannot, who is not saved, clean himself up. But rather, what this statement is, is a wise Old Testament believer advising his son that not even the believer can claim in any situation in life to have total or complete purity of motive. Who can say, I've cleansed my heart. I'm pure from my sin. The heart, the inner man, always has some corruption in it due to sin. It's, it's just the way that it is. We've, remember, we went through this in your packet, or the, the folder, the fold-out. Um, the heart always has some corruption in it due to sin. Uh, the mixed condition of the believer in Christ um, reveals this. Let's talk about what mixed condition means and what it does not mean again. Um, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that as you look at a weak 
you had a mixed heart that week. And what I mean by that is on Monday and Wednesday and Friday, you had sinful motives. But on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday, you were completely pure in your motives. And therefore, the week was mixed. That's not what mixed condition means. Um, the Word of God reveals that your thoughts, your words, your attitudes, your deeds, your desires, all of them, each one of them is mixed. Every thought. Um, now, in Christ, has the ability to be influenced by truth and by good desires that are pleasing to the Lord as well as in it at the same time the influence of the flesh and sin. Um, you cannot look at your thought life and say that is a completely pure motive for doing something. And I recognize that that may be shocking. Um, but what I want you to think about is that's not to say that you can't think right thoughts. You can. We have right thoughts here. But in terms of how we act and what we choose and, and how we are motivated, um, we have to be very careful about what we say. Um, let me give you an example. Go over to the New Testament, to 1 Corinthians verse, chapter 4, verse 4. And Paul says it this way. Paul was being scrutinized heavily by the Corinthian church. And he says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4, he says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself. In other words, he had examined himself and he wasn't aware of anything. But notice what he says in verse 4. Yet I am not by this acquitted. What is he ad admitting? Look, I can't see what it is. But what? That doesn't mean I'm guiltless. Um, verse 4. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, and he will disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Uh, there's things going on, Paul says, in the motive and in the heart that... We're trying to get to the bottom of, but we're just not able to. And there's going to be times when you're going to be like, I can't see any of the sin or any sin that would be in this decision or in this motive or in this pursuit. But that doesn't mean that you're acquitted because you can't see it. Okay. Um, go to James chapter one. Let me show you just a reminder of some ways that you need to be thinking. will allow scripture to be the one to help us think rightly in regards to this. James chapter 1, verse 26. If any man thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. It is possible to be deceived at the heart level. That's a mixed condition. Nobody in heaven is deceiving their heart or is deceived by their heart. Look at chapter 2, verse 4 of James. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? It is possible to have evil motives as a believer. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9. On the James' great treatise on the tongue. 
With it we bless our Lord and Father, verse 9, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. That's a mixed mouth. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Who's he talking to? Is he talking to the world? He's talking to the church. Does a fountain send forth, um, send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. So the mouth says good things, and the mouth says bad things. And the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So it's not a mouth problem, primarily. It's still, a, there's a heart problem. Um, so... Do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment of my heart? Um, Now, listen, uh, we are in an infinitely better condition in Christ than we ever were before, right? There was nothing in the heart that was pure ever before. Um, There was no motive that was ever honoring to Jesus Christ before Christ saved us. Even the good that we did um, in feeding our children as unbelievers. It was a Jesus-less motive. One empty of Christ. And even though it is good, it didn't bring glory to Christ because Christ was not at the center of it. That was what we used to be without Christ. Now, in Christ, it is so much better. There is the possibility of good things and good motives. But to be able to claim now that this heart of mine is completely empty of any impurity in this thought is a dangerous one to make. And um, this lesson came from a a time when, after a conversation that some elders had with somebody who said, um, you you can't question me on this because my motive is pure. Well, you just pulled the trump card, you know, my motive's pure. And what are you, judging my heart? Um, And I was like, wait a minute, that's... And his claim was because he had a new heart. Um, And so it it was like, no, we need to understand more carefully what we mean. Again, not saying that you can't think right thoughts. Can you think right thoughts in Christ? Boy, I hope so. (laughs) Yes, we can. Can you have, do you have good desires in Jesus Christ? Yes, you do. By his grace, by his work in your life. But to be able to say in a decision or something that this was only from pure pureness of motive, well, then you just died and went to heaven and made a choice because you're, you're, you can't be here in this condition. And so each one of us needs to try to hold, now listen carefully, an appropriate suspicion, appropriate suspicion over our own hearts because of this very wisdom from God concerning our hearts. Who can say, I've cleansed my heart from sin? And, and here's the way some of us, you, you could kind of draw a line, and, and we tend to probably go towards one of two poles of extremes that you don't want to be at. Some of us will gravitate toward the pole of never, ever, ever, never, ever finding anything good at any time, in any mode, of any time, any place in our lives. Just There's nothing good. Worm that I am. Um, some of us will gravitate towards that. And I would want to um, encourage 
that man with Romans 15, verse 14. You can write it down. Paul says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. You have been filled in Christ with a goodness that makes you able to care for other people in the body. Okay? This is not about self-esteem. This is not turning you onto yourself to like yourself. This is recognizing that God has put within a, 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 a clay vessel something good. And you have something to contribute to people around you. So one poll... Um, of, of extreme in being suspicious about your own heart as somebody who would never you, you would be missing some truth that would be an assessment of yourself that didn't take into consideration some things that God did do in your life by filling you with goodness to be able to be a benefit to others so avoid the pull of extreme of, of there's never any ever good in anything I've ever thought or done Okay, that's extreme what's the other extreme it's the example that I gave you Somebody being able to say, there's, a, there's a only purity of motive for things. Don't, don't question me. But listen, those are two extremes you want to avoid. You want to move more and be influenced by truth where you're navigating between that. Um, it, is, it is wise to say, you know, as far as, like Paul, as far as I can tell, I can't see what the impurity of motive is. But that doesn't mean I, I don't have it. In fact, I'm meeting with you so you can help me to see it. Let's open scripture together. Help me to see what I might not see on my own. Okay? So God's assessment over your own is the one to value. Yeah? Just a question related to that. Just in dealing with others, Mm -hmm. what's the response? Kind of 1 Corinthians 13, love believes all things. Mm -hmm. You know, what's that? Like being suspicious, but then also believing, you know, the best in believers. Yeah, you should always, um, when, when, whenever possible, believe the best until you have reason otherwise. Um, and, and unless you see something that you, you need to. And, and, you know, because you see something that's off in a brother doesn't mean that you have to bring it up every time. It, it's good to just pray for them. And um, I, I can remember learning early on in my marriage that I didn't have to um, confront every minor thought that was askew and the dear one who married me and <laughs> learned the hard way but yeah but, but I, I can remember specifically just thinking you know what Lord I'm just going to pray for my wife and and then to, to watch how God would change her without even me saying something you know and that makes me look like the good guy and heard the bad, and it's not true. It's just it's completely the opposite of that in my home. But, um, you know, you, you want to believe the best. And, and we should have, but at the same time, we should have an appropriate suspicion over each other as well. Appropriate. And, and be gracious on the side of, you know, I'll believe the best of you, you know. And, um, but here's, here's what I would, make it easy on your brothers. By not saying, this is totally, completely pure. There's nothing here to see. Make it easy on your brothers. Rather, be like Paul. Say, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see what it is, but that doesn't mean I, there's not something there. That makes it easy on one another to be gracious to each other. 
Um, we identify with that. Um, how about Proverbs 21.2? Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the hearts. You know how that first part of that verse feels, don't you? Every man's way is right in his own eyes. I mean, how many times have you made your path a choice in your mind and begin to execute it? You're telling it maybe to your spouse or to somebody else, and you are convinced this is flawless, right? I mean, you understand this. I mean, you, you get 21-2-A. It just feels sometimes completely, absolutely impossible that the path that you've chosen is not the right path. Where did self-assessment come up on this? At the extreme. Uh, It's right in my own eyes. We're far too easily impressed at times with our own ability to choose the right path to walk. I think it's interesting. What, What are our eyes looking at? In the first part of verse 2, every man's way, his path, um, his choices he made, the results of his choices, his actions. Our eyes are looking at what we're doing and where we're going and how we're moving along. What is Yahweh weighing? The inner you, the inner me. God is looking at the kind of inner man that we were before the choice was made and during the choices as are being made, and and his sight is far more trustworthy. Um, So it's easy for us to become unacquainted with our hearts throughout the day. It just is. Um, But God is never unacquainted with our hearts. He is always weighing the heart and we need to value his assessment of us more than we value our own assessment because I will only every time, every single time, acquit myself. And so we... Um, Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six: He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But he who walks wisely will be delivered. And, and again... Solomon here is not merely describing the unbeliever. Let me tell you who the unbeliever is. He's the one who trusts in his own heart, and the believer is the one who walks wisely and will be delivered. No, he's describing the believer. All of it is the believer. Trusting in your own heart is is contrasted with the last part, which is walking wisely. Okay, so understand the contrast. Uh, If if walking wisely is the good part at the end of verse uh, 26... The contrast is what is bad in front of it. So in other words, if you trust in your own heart, this is not good. Um, and it implies that you will be trapped and in need of deliverance. Listen to what um, this commentator said. If any cheat had deceived us a hundred times, we would certainly deserve the character of fools if we trusted him another time. And we are great strangers at home. If we are not sensible that it has been the common practice of our hearts to impose falsehoods on us from our youth up. So if somebody came to you, an actual person, and they, they cheated you a hundred times, and then you trusted them one more time, you'd be, we'd say that's foolish, right? Without being able to see at the same time that this heart, this inner man that is mixed, is capable of deception. It's capable of good. But it's capable of deception. And it is constantly... Uh, working that out in us in such a way that the psalmist would say, or the you know Solomon would say in Proverbs, 
to trust in your own heart is to be a fool. Hey Scott, I'm, yeah. I'm just, you know, it kind of almost sounds like it implies, you know, if you if you trust in your own heart, you're going to be trapped. But if you if you walk wisely, you know, you, you'll be delivered. It almost sounds like a results-oriented um, passage. Whereas, I mean, there's times where the results of what we've what we've chosen. I know in my own life, the results of what I've chosen, it all looks good, but that result is actually out of something that was definitely led by my own heart. Can you speak to that a little bit? Or? I'm not sure. Expand a little bit more. I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. I guess. Saying. I guess. I'm. Uh, what I'm saying is, I, I don't think that it's a that it's a necessarily that this is an an always cause and effect. You know. I. I mean, when I look at just if I just just look at the results, because the results don't always show what my what my heart truly was. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering your your thought your thoughts on that. My 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 you know. The easy inclination is to say, well, if the results are good, then then my heart was good, yeah. even if we don't necessarily realize what's in our heart. Yeah. Well, that, that's certainly true, what you're saying, that just because the results are good, we should not draw an equal sign that everything I did and thought must have been acceptable. And Proverbs is written in a way that these are generally true. These are not um, written... And we all, everybody understands how proverbs work in any society. They don't describe the way things exactly are every single time without exception. But it is generally, generally too, that true that if you humble yourself, um, God will lift you up. Um, there are times when Job was humbled and he didn't get lifted up right at all. Tom? Uh, just kind of answering the question yeah. is, the, the two things to keep in mind is, I'll give two verses, Isaiah 43, 7, that we were created for God's glory, and 2 Corinthians 5, 9, that in the midst of making decisions, we are making it, and here's the verse, we make it our aim to please Him. So the result might look like a flop, but we may have brought glory to God in the midst of it which is what our intent should have been. So, That's good. so it's kind of like, on a, on a earthly sense, this just didn't work out the way I wanted. But it's still possible to bring God glory, or it's still possible to continue making it our aim to please Him, even though the, the worldly outcome that we're living here on earth, this just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. But we can still give the Lord. That's good. Hopefully that's good. That's good. Let's look at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Very familiar proverb, right? And here is just the clear positive command concerning your inner man as a believer. What is it? Gather up all that you are inwardly, your whole heart, all your heart, before God, and trust in Him. That's the clear positive. Notice that it leads you away from you to Him. Right? And then here's the clear negative command concerning your inner man as a believer. Do not lean or trust in your own understanding. Uh, that right there should say to you, should give enough of a qualification 
to any choice that you would make or any motive involved in anything where you would say, as far as I can tell, I prayed this through, I think this is a good thing to do, but I'm not going to trust in my own understanding. But I will take all that I am and I will trust in the Lord. So, as you move from your heart into the paths of life that you've chosen from the heart, uh, that's not, you, you notice that you never graduate from relying on the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding as you're even contemplating what it is that you should do before you. And then notice in verse 6 how he moves out into the ways, the actual path that you'll be choosing. In all your ways, still what? Acknowledge him. And he will make your paths straight. Um, so as you move outward from your heart to the paths of life, still acknowledge God. Still look away, your, away from yourself. Solomon tries to make this very clear that for the Old Testament believer, there should always be a looking away from self to God. So you don't want to like trust in your own heart and value your, your, your own assessment of your heart. Um, so be very careful of your own assessment of your heart in the sense that you would put your trust in your heart. If, if you assess your heart and you therefore trust in your heart, something really went wrong. What has God given to us to help us assess the heart? How about Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12? Remember this? How on earth are you going to ever be able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart? How are you ever going to be able to assess them rightly? What has God given to you and me to help us get to the bottom of the thoughts and the intentions of our heart? There it is. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Well, how far can it go? Well, it can pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit. I'm trying to figure that out. Above joints and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So, um, it is important for you to assess your heart, to measure your heart. But the result is not so that you would trust in your heart. It is so that you would look away from your heart, and that you would trust Yahweh, and acknowledge Him in all your ways. So... By the way, if your heart was always pure, why would we need to have the Word of God help us judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart? That's for a believer. Right? There's no need to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart of those who are with the Lord in heaven. This is for us. Whose assessment of your heart are you most impressed with? Your own or God's? Number one, do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment of my heart? Number two, am I more inclined to carefully control my heart or blindly follow my heart? Am I more inclined to carefully control my heart or blindly follow my heart? I've got three Proverbs here for you. Proverbs 6.25, Proverbs 7.25, and Proverbs 23.17. Notice the three commands. Chapter 6, verse 25, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. Notice the command in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 25, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. And then Proverbs 23, 17, do not let your heart envy sinners. 
Solomon's clear expectation for his son is that his son would control his inner man. Control yourself. In what sense? Well, don't desire her beauty in your heart. That's, that's, that's on you, son. Don't do it. Control your inner man. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't look over there. That's on you. Control your heart. And do not let your heart envy sinners. What does that imply about the believer's heart? Controllable. It's controllable. But if you have to control it, what does that say about your heart? It's prone to wonder. I feel it. Right? You ever wonder why that line in that song grabs you every time? <laughs> it's because it's, you, your experience has found it to be true. As a believer... <laughs> Not just as an unbeliever, right? Um, remember Jacob's uh, lesson last time on Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Write down also Proverbs 23.19. This is great. Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. There's, there's a, the Old Testament wisdom for shepherding your heart. Direct your heart. Shepherd your heart. Control your heart. Um, if you blindly follow whatever comes out of your heart, you might do some good things, and you might really lead yourself astray and experience some serious woe. So control your heart. Are you more inclined to carefully control your heart or blindly follow your heart? Um, number three. Do I know in what ways my heart is vulnerable? Do I know in what ways my heart is vulnerable? Here are two proverbs that show how the heart can be weakened, how the heart can be brought down, how the heart can be made sick. Look at Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety in a man's heart, what? Weighs it down. But a good word makes it glad. And Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred. The carrot on a stick. There it is. Take a step and the carrot moved. Take another step and the carrot moved. Hope deferred <coughs> makes the heart, what? Sick, but desire fulfilled as a tree of life. What impact does the sin of anxiety or worry have on your heart? Well, it makes your heart sink like a stone under the weight of that sin. Um, as one commentator says, it, it'll sink to depths of despair where it can no longer apprehend gospel comforts. And where it can no longer offer thanks to God. Have you ever been so weighed down that you felt that way, Scott? Would it be good to just say a word on why anxiety is sinful? Sure, absolutely. I'm waiting oh, for you. Okay. <laughs> 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 Let that be a lesson to you. You come up with a good idea, you got to run with it. <laughs> Make sure you have it ready to go before you do it. <laughs> okay, um, we need to remember that when we're, we're anxious about something, it's a time when our trust and our confidence is more in ourselves than in the Lord. Because when we remind ourselves what is true about God in terms of his creative nature 
control over all things, his wisdom, his knowledge, everything like that. We, we understand, we remind ourselves that he has this. This is not escaping him, this is not confusing to him, this is not unknown to him. Um, so there's no reason to have true anxiety over a situation. We have anxiety over a situation when, when we are attempting to seize control of a situation and we know that we have limited means and limited capacities in ourselves and we're not sure if we're up to the task. Yeah, that's great. And, and even what God does sometimes <coughs> for his own glory and maybe humor, maybe, is... Okay. I'm sorry, I just got to take a breath. I did. Let me, let me, I'll finish sure, that. Yeah, we'll get sure. yours. Sometimes what he'll do is he'll lead you to um, a sea, and there's no way forward, and the bad guys are right on your tail. And even then, there's no need for anxiety, because he likes to lead you to a dead end sometimes in life, and there's no way forward as far as you can see, and then he does something that you wouldn't have imagined him to do. So, Tom. Scott, yeah, I think taking the whole lesson here today into consideration of uh, how deceptive our heart is, I, you need to realize that the church seminaries have taken an area of sanctification and given it to the medical community. Anxiety is one of those items that the church has just willingly said, we don't want to deal with it. Go find another means for anxiety. Uh, it's interesting that 18% of the population in this country has been professionally diagnosed with emotional issues. And one of the emotional issues that the medical community has put into that category is anxiety. Uh, guys, this is a, Scott, you're so right, this is a heart shepherding moment that uh, can you trust in the Lord in the midst of this situation? And sometimes, some situations, it's really, really hard. But look how, look, look at uh, Proverbs 12, 25, but look how easily the heart can be lifted up. Your heart may be sinking to depths where the gospel just seems unbelievable and thankfulness to God is completely gone. But look how the verse ends. But a good word makes it glad. There's hope, right? All it can take is, is, is just one word, a good one. And the heart can find hope. Is that referring more to an encouraging word from somebody else or more to a word from God through this? Or yeah, is it kind of both? Probably both. I mean, probably whatever... The only thing that would make a word good is one that was influenced by God's truth. Mm. So, yeah, that's good. So there's good news, right? What about Proverbs thirteen twelve? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Um, and again, that's like the carrot on a stick, right? Uh, it, you're hoping for something, you take some steps, and it's just to keep out. It, you never seem to, it just keeps getting put off and put off and put off. Um, what effect does that have on the heart? make you sick um, we need to be careful um, what people and pursuits and outcomes that we put our hope in because if you put your hope in the wrong thing and it's not, not a possibility what's going to happen you think there will be no spiritual impact on you there will be 
Um, and so that's why we have to have our hope in the right things. Because if those hopes fall through, our hearts will definitely be affected. And I, I'll tell you the area of conviction for me most on this is as a, as a dad. Have you ever said to your kids, yeah, 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 we'll do that. Yeah, we'll do that. And you forget about it the moment it comes out of your mouth. But your kid, five years later, will remind you that you have still not followed through with that. And so they set their hope foolishly in what their dad said. They shouldn't do that, ultimately. And yet, we need to be very careful that what we say we're going to do, that we do it. Because why? Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. And a parent can have that impact on their child without even really thinking about it. Um, so be wise to consider carefully before you ever promise to do something to make sure that you actually have a plan. It's better to say what instead if you're not sure. Hey, let me let me work on that. Let me let me let me see what what we can do on that. I need to think about that a little bit more carefully before I give you an answer. Dira, um, it would seem that this would. I'm thinking of like the, the Christian life, um, the desire to be done with sin. There's a hope, resurrection. We're running, straining, want to get to that end. Um, and can grow weary or sick, I guess. Um, can you talk through how the like how it does not fit into the verse? Yes. Or, yeah. I'd love to. Do you guys understand this question? Yeah. Um, how is the hope of eternal life not a carrot on a stick? Because of this. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man. The one whom he raised from the dead. And that day is not moving back and moving back and moving back and moving back. Um, now, I may every day just hope for the fact that this fight was still going to be over. It's coming. Everything in the hope in the, uh, in, in the, of eternal life and in the resurrection of the dead and getting the new body and everything that Jesus has for me is not being put off like a carrot on a stick. It has, it's rushing towards us. In fact, he brings this to us rather than we're waiting to, and progressing towards it. The Bible speaks of it more as if he's bringing it to us. So uh, it's coming. <clears throat> That hope is coming. It will be realized. Um, some people will have to live to 100 to begin to taste it at its next level um, when they die. Some will unexpectedly taste it today. But it's coming. It's not being held off from us, so it doesn't make our hearts sick. That hope brings us joy. Right? I think also, as you're speaking, we get to experience glimpses of that hope every single day, where I think what this verse is saying is that when you hope in ungodly situations or things, people, people, whatever, my spouse, my kids, or they hope in me, I'm going to disappoint. Yeah, that's really good. That's a great point to bring out. Yeah. Um, very good. And, and again, notice the good, the good news, how easily things change in verse 12. But 
desire fulfilled is a tree of life, man. When it does, when it, when whatever worldly hope does come through, man, it's it's like a, a tree of life. Um, so, here are two proverbs that reveal two ways in which your heart is vulnerable um, through anxiety and deferred hope. And it would probably be a good idea to know the ways in which your inner man before God is vulnerable. It'd be good to to be able to assess that. Do I know in what ways my heart is vulnerable? Number four, lastly, when I am in trouble, do I ever back up and consider my heart? When I am in trouble, do I ever back up and consider my heart? Let's look at Proverbs 18, verse 12. Before destruction... Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, prideful, arrogant, but humility goes before honor. And again, these are, these are uh, generalizations that are generally true in life. They are not true in every single situation at every single time. Uh, but that's the way we all understand it. That's the way that Proverbs work. Um, so if you come upon destruction a life that is undone spiritually or perhaps a a ministry that is undone spiritually, a relationship that is unraveling spiritually, the presence of that kind of destruction is an opportunity to stop and evaluate the influence that pride possibly had, possibly had in bringing about that destruction because before destruction, the heart of man is prideful. Um, one commentator said, proud men are always standing on the edge of a fearful precipice from whence they will soon tumble into destruction. What about Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen? How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. He who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So the presence of calamity then is an opportunity to evaluate the hardness or softness of my heart. What was the condition of my heart prior to this calamity? But you have to remember that the fact that you are in a calamitous situation or some kind of spiritual destruction in a relationship or whatever is present, it may not automatically mean that arrogance or hardness of heart was there because what is the example in scripture of a man who was not in sin but man in his life was a calamity Job so that's why I say possibly not automatically but possibly Job was in fact the writer of Job is very clear to tell us at the beginning that in this Job did not what? Sin. So he was not experiencing the calamity that he experienced because he sinned. And and Job is just such a great book because it's there to tell us in the Bible that there are things going on cosmically, universally, spiritually that you can't see but were caught up in. Why did he go through what he did? Because God has an enemy. And sometimes... We're apart. We're on the battlefield until he makes everything right. And Job started out really well. He did not sin, but by the time it was done, he, it got the best of him. Because he was convinced that God was the one who erred 
by the time he was done. And he had to put his hand over his mouth and stop it. Notice what this is contrasted with. The one who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. The contrast is, is the blessed man who fears always. In the context of Proverbs, what does fear always refer to? The fear of the Lord and wisdom. One who's walking wisely, who has the fear of the Lord. Um, so think carefully about a hardened heart. Maybe a couple of simple little illustrations to help you think about um, hardness of heart. If you need, if you wanted to um, plant a garden, and you came upon some very, very hard ground, you, you probably wouldn't take a hand shovel, hand trowel, and try to break it up. You'd have to go get a pickaxe, right? Um, which way is your heart? It's a way to think about it. Is my wife swinging? Why is she taking so many swings at me right now? Well, maybe the issue is the heart is not very penetrable right now. Um, what about a knot? Your kids got their, you know, just look, just by the Velcro ones that have little flashing lights on the bottom. It <laughs> solves a lot of things. But you get, they need help tying their shoes. Um, which, which knot is the one that's easy to unravel? The one that hasn't been stepped on and yanked and pulled tight. I mean, you think about it. You have to get an iron hook to dig at it to undo that hard knot. Which way can your heart be in a certain situation? Think of those kinds of things and ask yourself. Um, and sometimes it, you may be thinking, you know, again, why, are, why is my friend just coming after me like that? Well, maybe there's something trying to pick at to, to get to the bottom of, and it's just difficult to. Um, so the existence of trouble and calamity and spiritual unraveling, it's an opportunity to back up. It's an opportunity to evaluate the condition of the heart, of what it was prior to that. So let's think for a minute. Let's think pastorally. Let's think about discipleship. Let's just think about fellowship, Christian friendship. Suppose you come upon um, a believing friend's um, life and they, a situation, and they, they appear spiritually devastated for whatever reason you don't know, but they're spiritually unraveled before you, what should you do first? Um, first, it is wise for you to just enter into their distress. Hmm. Understand, help them to see that, that they're not alone. You understand that they are living in a broken world in a mixed body full of rebellion and good, and you understand that and weep with those who weep. Meet them where they're at and help them to know that you understand that you've been there um, and meet them where they are in their distress. Sympathize with the one, uh, with that one, as if you are somebody who understands that trouble is commonplace in this world. Start there. You see, that's what Job's friends did initially, didn't they? How many days did they sit there and say nothing? They just sat with them. They were horrified. They were, their heart was broken for what they saw their dear friend going through. Secondly, what could you do? Then, think carefully, because the existence of calamity doesn't automatically mean the believer has been foolish. It doesn't automatically mean that they are being disciplined by God. Right? 
but nevertheless, as a good sister or brother, gently and carefully help them to back up and to evaluate their thinking, help them to evaluate their inner man prior to the calamity because before destruction, the heart of man is prideful and he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. But what will be devastating to a person, especially a person who is in calamity, not because of arrogance and not because of hardness of heart, if you come in right away and you just make an accusation, you bring this up, you may really miss the mark and you will be admonishing somebody who actually needs help and needs encouragement, right? So here's four questions for you each day that you can uh, use to take measurements of yourself frequently with these questions. Number one, do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment of my heart? Number two, Am I more inclined to carefully control my heart or just blindly follow my heart? Number three, do I know in what ways my heart is vulnerable? Do I know what makes my heart sink? Do I know what makes my heart lose sight of God? Do I know what makes it sick? And fourthly, when trouble comes, will I back up and measure the condition of my heart? Okay. Now, if you'll take a look at your... um, green sheets, your homework. Just like I call yours for next to look at it. Thank you. Um, you're looking back, you're looking day by day, you're looking ahead. will involve the self-explanatory there, but on the back, what I did for your homework is I put the outline again with all of the verses, and I want you to just kind of, uh, between now and the next time we meet together, just consider again those four questions from Proverbs. And I don't know why it says 3, 28, 15. That's because I didn't see that. Sorry. That's not the lesson. Date. Um, but write a solid paragraph answer in the space provided for each question. Okay, guys? So just take a little space down there and write out um, impressions, whatever has impacted you from those verses. Okay? Well, we uh, finished up early today. If um, you are able to stay and help for just a few minutes, some of the ladies, we won't be able to do the classrooms because the ladies are in their small groups for another seven minutes or so. Um, but down by um, the bathrooms are all the supplies. I can help some guys walk through that. And um, if you want to just help pick up after yourself here, take food home with you. You guys who brought it, thank you so much, Bobby. Appreciate that today. Um, just kind of pick up a little bit. That'd be great. All right. Let's close in prayer, though, and then we'll uh, get to work a little bit. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for um, the opportunity to consider our hearts from your um, from the book of Proverbs. And Lord, I pray that you would give us um, the proper um, balance that truth will bring to our lives. Thank you that it acts like a guardrail, keeping us from extremes. So, Lord, I pray that um, for the men here who might be um, suspicious of their own hearts in ways that really doesn't please you, um, by being, um, by by not acknowledging the good that you do bring about in us. Lord, I also pray that you would keep men from a, a, a suspicion that also is not pleasing to you, and that's the one where we are convinced there is nothing wrong within the heart and the motive. Lord, help us to be properly weighted out 
by your truth. And Lord, I just pray for each of us as men that, Lord, you would help us to not trust in our own hearts and that we would not lean on our own understanding, but instead we would be marked by the trait of always looking away from ourselves and turning to you and trusting in you with all of our heart. Lord, what an impact that would make on my wife today and my kids if I were that man in my home. And what an impact that would make on um, my fellowship and our, our fellowship and ministry to one another in the church. And, and what a bright light in a very, very dark world that man would be, where people only are told left and right all the time to trust in their own heart, uh, to fulfill every <coughs> desire, regardless of what it brings about on others. And Father, for those in whom you are working, they are beginning to see and taste. They, they probably can't even put it into words, but they're beginning to see and taste the, the bitterness of trusting in their own hearts. And Lord, what they need to see in us as we live in the world is they need to see men who are not trusting in ourselves, but trusting in you. So God, I pray that you would grow us in this as men and that, Lord, we would uh, be a bright light for you and that perhaps, God, you might use us even this week to uh, bring hope to an unbeliever and that we might be able to speak forth the words of truth in the gospel and let them see the, the very one they should trust in, Jesus, who paid every penalty at the cross for those he saves, Lord. We thank you for him. We thank you for his great work in our own lives. And uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, very much. Appreciate you being here.